0: We're going to look at Matthew 13 again this morning. Matthew 13. In this chapter, we have seven stories, seven parables that Jesus told that are sometimes called the parables of the... Does anybody know? Parables of the kingdom... These stories or these parables are little analogies to illustrate a spiritual truth. The deal with the parable, though, is that it's not always self-explanatory. It takes, to really get the point of the parable, takes more contemplation, continuing to listen, further Insight and revelation, even, in order to be fully grasped. So that verse 11, if you look at it, it calls these truths about the kingdom of God secrets, doesn't it? You see that word? Secrets or mysteries, which, of course, comes from the Old Testament context of the book of Daniel where god revealed to himself to king nebuchadnezzar by way of mysteries dreams and visions you might call a parable or a mystery or something like that a revelation in the mist you ever go out when it's foggy and you can see things far away but they're they're very faint you can see that there, there's something there you kind of see the outline but you can't quite see all of the details that's what a parable is. Jesus is giving you some information or He's giving you some revelation, but it's a little bit misty like that. But to those with no spiritual ears to hear, they walk away from those stories thinking that they were interesting, even intriguing but just not quite clear. They're kind of obscure. And so Jesus has said back in chapter 11, verse 25, remember He said, He actually thanked God. He said, I thank you that you have, what? Hidden these things, the things He's speaking. You've hidden these things from the so-called wise and understanding of this world. But you've revealed them, to little children, and what's true about little children? They don't come with with embedded preconceived notions of reality. They just, you tell them something, and they just say, "Oh, okay." They just take it. They believe it. He says, "You have obscured." You, God. Christ says that the Father has obscured the things about the kingdom, about the glories of the kingdom of Christ from some people, but revealed them to those who are little children. He has obscured them from those who are intellectually self-sufficient, but he's revealed them to those who depend on God for how to think about everything. He obscures them from those who demand to eat of the tree of knowledge, And he reveals them to those who live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So these are parables. And Jesus is going to illustrate things about the kingdom. And they'll be clarifying for some people, even while other people walk away entertained but not moved. Now these parables, as I said, are about the kingdom. They're parables of the kingdom. And so it's important that we're all in the same place on that in terms of what the kingdom is. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule, God's reign. That probably seems pretty obvious, the reign of God. And God reigns, the Bible teaches us, over all things. His sovereignty extends over everything that ever happens in this world. And that's why he says... In one of the parables, the field that he's talking about is the whole world, right? But more narrowly, more specifically, the kingdom of God is God's reign through Christ the King, His chosen Son, over a people who joyfully submit to Him and who thoroughly enjoy His reign forever. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, I think it's said both ways. The kingdom of heaven has both a future expectation. We're waiting for the kingdom to come. Jesus taught us to pray that way, right? Your kingdom, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. It has both a it is both a future expectation in terms of the fact that we're waiting for immortality and all of the fullness of the consummation of Christ uh, God's reign through Christ on this earth, but it's also a present reality. It's a present reality almost like it's in another dimension, but it has real effects in this dimension. It's, it's a parallel kingdom going on right now to the kingdoms of this world. And it has real effects because it is, in reality, already established, already inaugurated when the king came. He didn't lose on the cross. He started reigning on the cross. So he was raised up to God's right hand. So that kingdom is already established and is already having effects, being made visible in this world. We saw a couple of weeks ago how Jesus gave the illustration of leaven, a little bit of yeast, that's hidden in the lump of dough. And even though it's hidden in there, like in some ways Jesus' parables are hidden, the kingdom of God is hidden from some people. So he says, even though that, that, that uh, yeast, that, that little lump of leaven was hidden in the dough, it nevertheless had effects, that were manifest throughout the whole lump. And that's the way the kingdom of God is. It's it's invisible to so many people, and yet its effects become visible through the people who are committed to the king and whose lives are being transformed by it. And then their families are transformed, and their communities are transformed. And and, uh, so it is a kingdom that is uh, awaiting a future consummation and yet already is being made visible in the people of God. So each of these parables illustrates then something about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so today we come to three parables, three final parables in this text, and uh, we're going to look at verses 44 to 50. Would you follow it with me? Matthew thirteen forty-four. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, the men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels, Jesus says, will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there are three short parables, um, two basic sections. One, the parable of the treasure, right? You see that one, the first one? And the second one, the uh, pearl, or the pearl merchant. Those two go together because they have a similar form, And a similar theme. And then the second section is this first or this third parable, the parable of the net. And that also has a twin parable, but we looked at it a few weeks ago. Any idea what the parable, the twin parable of the net might be? I think it's the parable of the, somebody want to say? Yeah, I think that's, you're, you're right. The wheat and weeds. So, um, and and, and I say it's a twin because they have very similar themes, and because even the wording itself at, at the end of the parable is very, very similar, almost identical in some ways. So, because we looked at the parable of the wheat and the weeds a few weeks ago, I want to take this second parable, or this third parable actually, first, and remind ourselves of that theme, and then we'll look at the first two. All right, so first of all, the parable of the net. And this is in verses 47 and following. A pretty common scene on the Sea of Galilee. You know that much of Jesus' ministry took place around the Sea of Galilee, all along the western and northern shores primarily. And uh, these disciples, some of them had been fishermen. This was a very common thing. They could picture these guys out there with their net. This would be a kind of a drag net. Not the old TV cop show. You remember that in the old days. But um, a big net probably weighted thrown out into the sea and sort of pulled along the bottom of the lake. Um, Sometimes it's done from shore. Uh, Sometimes a couple of boats and the net would be stretched in between and they'd pull the net. Um, And then they'd gather it in and see what got caught in the net. So here's a fishing by dragnet, and the imagery, of course, Jesus has already used um, in terms of telling his disciples, follow me, and I will make you, what, fishers of men. And so in this parable, too, the fish represent men that are, um, that are gathered in. Um, the key element of the parable is the indiscriminate nature of the catch, right? The indiscriminate nature of the catch, which teaches us that the preaching of the gospel will inevitably draw all people along with it to the great day of God's judgment. The gospel will have that effect. It will inevitably draw all humanity along with it to the great day of God's judgment. And the focus of the parable then is on that day, the day of sorting. The time when you finally, when the net is full, there's no more fish to be caught, they're all brought in, and on the shore, some are thrown into, or or some are uh, kept, the good and the bad are discarded. And of course, this is, a way to talk about people and the great separation, the great distinction, the great divide that God will make among humanity at the end of the age. Um, Now, when he says that there were fish that were good and there were fish that were bad, of course, we understand that on on a human level, there's some fish you like to eat and some fish you don't, some that are good for something and some that... Can't find any good use for it, and they would get rid of those. Um, But in terms of humanity, we dare not think of this difference as being people who are inherently good morally and people who are inherently bad morally. That's not the division that's being spoken of here. For the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In that sense, we're all bad fish by nature, inherently. And until you come to really just reckon on the Bible's teaching about the nature of humanity, you don't really have haven't begun, you haven't gotten to step one to understand the gospel. The parable of the soils, in fact, taught us that the difference between the people is manifested by their response to the gospel. And the gospel's message is, very simply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The gospel doesn't demand that you do in order that you might be righteous. The gospel demands that you believe on the one who was righteous to turn in your heart from your sin. To say, no longer do I want to hold on to my sin, now I want to hold on to Jesus because I see who He is. He was righteous, and oh, I need that kind of righteousness. In Him, sin may be forgiven, and that's what I need. I need my sin forgiven. The gospel is simply believe, repent, call upon Christ, and you will be saved. So these people, the the distinction being made here then is a distinction in terms of their response to the gospel. The good are those who hear the gospel, receive it, continue to hear the word of Christ, grow in it, and begin to bear its effects in their lives or as Jesus referred to earlier, the fruit that comes from ground that really is good, when good seed hits it. The focus then is on verse 49, on the end of the age. You see how Jesus brings us back to that again? He's made that the focus of the parable of the wheat and weeds, and now here it is again, the focus of the parable of the net. It is on the end of the age, the day of sorting. And on that day when God judges humanity, our Savior says that there are only two categories. There are those who are saved and that there are those who are lost. Now, if you take a look again at verse 49 and verse 50, you might notice that the wording of those verses is identical almost, it's nearly identical to the wording earlier in the passage to, of the uh, parable of the weeds, right? The angels are involved in sorting out all of the people of the earth. The believing good are gathered in. The unbelieving bad are thrown into the fiery furnace. The same language as he used before where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that imagery almost just seemed like an element of the story back in the parable of the weeds. Because what do you do with weeds? You gather them all up, you put them all in a big heap, and you set them on fire, and you you just burn them. That's what they would have done. And take them down to the dump. Just burn them. And then you bring in the good one. It almost, in that passage, almost seemed like just a kind of an element of the story. Although, of course, when we looked at it, we said, you know, there's something beyond just, just a story element there. In this passage, it becomes clear. Because who takes fish and gathers them in a pile and throws them into a fiery furnace? No, you just throw them back in the lake or whatever. If they've already died, you leave them lying on the shore for animals to eat. All of that, I bring it up to say this, that this is not simply an element of story, but a description of the reality to which it points. Friends, hear me now. This is imagery... This is the imagery of hell. This is Christ revealing to us something about the eternal destiny of those who go on in unbelief and rejection of the gospel and go on in their sin. Hell was a place, is a place of eternal punishment for the devil and his angels, the Bible tells us. But Jesus says it will be the eternal destiny of those who follow the devil in unbelief and disobedience. And interestingly, in light of this parable, in Revelation it's referred to as a lake. A lake of fire in which all of these are thrown. In other words, the Bible tells us that hell is a place of fire and torment. And to use the language of Jesus, it's a place of everlasting weeping. And it's a place of eternally unresolved anger. It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of, if you can possibly imagine it, utter abandonment from God. And I warn you this morning to run from that fate. Young people, adults, everyone in the sound of this sermon today, I urge you to run from the judgment that will come upon people who sit in a service and hear the word of God and say, I don't care, I want to hold on to my own way flee from the wrath to come don't don't think that this is a bunch of imaginary stuff this is our savior speaking to us if we can't trust him about this then we have nothing then we can't trust him about anything he's telling us this that we may be warned and that we may run to Christ, in whom is the only hope for sinful souls. Jesus Christ bore the sufferings of hell in the place of sinners, so that we might be saved. He suffered under the fiery wrath of God, that we might be freed from it, that we might be made right with God. He was abandoned by God, so that we might be reconciled to God. And I would admonish you here this morning, even where you sit, to just call out to Him and say, Lord, I am a sinner, and I know I deserve your judgment, but my hope is in Jesus Christ. I see Him as righteous and holy and good, and I see your promises that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus may be saved, and the best I know how right now, I want to tell you, uh, I trust Him. I believe in Him. And I ask You for His sake, please save me. Come into my heart and make me new. Turn me away from my own kingdom and to the kingdom of Your dear Son. And I just admonish You to do that today. That You would be saved because our Lord says there is a day coming when all of humanity will face the judgment of God. And every one of us, I'll be there and you'll be there, and I will stand or fall on that day, and so will you. Now, I said there are two basic sections here. And uh, the first two parables go together, both in form and in message, and that's what we want to look at now. The parables of the treasure and the pearl. Verses 44 to 45, you see it there. Just two really simple, short illustrations that Jesus gave. So a man finds a treasure in a field. And of course, this is before modern banking. And hiding, burying your treasure in a field probably wasn't all that uncommon. There's a famous scroll that was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. They call it the Copper Scroll. Written literally on a copper scroll, <laughs> and uh, it gives, among other things, uh, the the uh, directions to find caches of gold and jewels that are hidden among the caves, likely still there somewhere because no one has ever deciphered the scroll <laughs> and figured out where these treasures are. Uh, so here's a man who comes across a a treasure, and you can just imagine what that's like. When when I was a kid, I loved to read stories of hidden treasure, finding treasure. Do you ever, ever read Treasure Island? And uh, these, this group of people gets together and embarks on a journey and is willing to risk everything in order to find this buried loot. A number of years ago, uh, U.S. News and World Report ran an article about modern-day treasure hunters, people who go out looking for sunken ships or buried treasures of different kinds that have been lost through the ages. And but the subtitle caught my attention. The subtitle of the article was You Can Easily Spend a Fortune to Find a Fortune. <laughs> but that's exactly what, what this man does. Jesus says he goes and he sells everything he has in order to buy this one field where the treasure is buried. Imagine that. Imagine selling everything you have, all your property, all your possessions, putting it up on eBay and Craigslist and putting it on the housing market and whatever. It's selling everything that you have in order that you could buy one thing, one piece of, of undeveloped property. Why would he do that? Well, the same theme runs through the parable of the, uh, the merchant, the, the pearl merchant. Right, Pearls, of course, were highly valued just as they are today. Even from ancient times, people collected them because they were beautiful, iridescent, rare, hard to come by, especially you know, in the days before cultured pearls, pearl farms. Each of the large gates in the New Jerusalem, you remember, is said to be made of a single pearl. You can just think of the wealth of that that visionary city. So this man, in the story, he makes his living by buying and selling pearls all around the world. He travels and collects these coveted organic gems. And one day in his travels, he comes across a pearl that is beyond anything he's ever seen in his life. It is of such rare beauty and value that he also, Jesus says sold all that he had and bought it, verse 45. That's what characterizes both of these stories. These people find something that prompts them to go sell everything that they have in order to get it. And there really are two major and related lessons that Jesus has for his disciples from these two stories. The first is this, that the person who truly finds the kingdom of heaven recognizes that he has come across something of infinite worth. And that's not apparent to everybody. There are plenty of people who walked by that same field every single day and never gave a thought to buying it, much less selling everything that they had in order to be able to buy that field. The treasure was hidden, you see. So many people just didn't see it. Just like people didn't really understand the significance of Jesus' parables, just like the kingdom was hidden from those who were wise and understanding in this world. And I tell you what, there are plenty of people today who just don't get it. Who just don't see what you see in this religion thing. Who just don't understand why you would waste so much time And invest so much energy in reading and studying God's Word. Living in the way that you do. Spending your money and your time the way you do. They just don't understand what the big deal is. Doesn't seem like something to get all worked up about. It's just an old field. There are many of you that have come to see and to understand the value of the kingdom of God. The worth of having God rule over you through Christ. The worth of being in the kingdom that is overseen by God Himself. The value of living in a kingdom in which God rules over all things for the good, for the eternal good of every one of His subjects. You've come to see that. Your eyes are, have been opened and you say, how would I want to live any other way? Right? What would I go el- What else would I go to? Where else would I turn? You've come to see and to appreciate that God is infinitely wise and that He is faithfully loving and that He is holy and pure. That He is absolutely omnipotent and unfailingly good. You've come to see that, and my prayer is, friends, that we would all come to see the value and the glory of the kingdom of God, and that every one of us would come to see it more clearly. Because I'll tell you, even as a Christian, sometimes our vision gets a little blurry, doesn't it? Our sight gets... uh, caught up with all of the other things in the world that are that are gilded, that are honeyed. And we lose sight of the one of peerless worth. But praise God, there was a time that He opened our eyes and we said, that's the way to live. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. That realm is so beautiful and so wonderful and so full of peace and joy and prosperity and and glory, that, that I want to be a part of that, not a part of, not a part of this. He said, Lord, bring me into your kingdom. Right? The second lesson is closely related to that, and it's this, that the person who truly sees the worth of the kingdom of heaven is happily, happily willing to part with anything in order to obtain it. Each of these people in these stories sold everything that they had in order to possess and obtain it. Why? Why? What's going on? I mean, you think about that guy who passed by the field. Fifteen minutes before he made the discovery, the thought of selling all that he owned would never have crossed his mind. And even if it did, it would have seemed ludicrous. But 15 minutes after finding the treasure, he was willing to do it, not just grudgingly, but with joy. He couldn't wait to put all his possessions on eBay so he could get the field. It it wasn't a sacrifice to him, was it? He wasn't like, oh, I guess I need to sell everything. No, he was like, I can't wait to get this field. The perspective made what would look like self-sacrifice, it put it in a whole new light. What was it that made the difference? It was the value of the one thing that eclipsed the value of all of the rest put together. And in this light, a Christian's willingness to sacrifice for the kingdom of heaven is not ludicrous. It's not incomprehensible. It's It's not done even out of a sense of stoic duty. He gives up everything with eager anticipation because he just feels like he's getting the better deal. He's not coerced into turning away from sin so he could have Christ. He realizes the glory of what he can have and it makes the things that, that call him in this world seem so small and insignificant. You don't need to feel sorry for somebody like this. He can't wait to sell everything because he can't believe his good fortune at finding the one thing that is worth so much more. This is true of Christians who leave home and family and comfort, and leave everything that they have here in the United States in order to go into a faraway place for the sake of the gospel. I tell you, friends, they gain more than they ever lost. For, for Christian people, believing people who give away their time and their money and their prestige for the sake of the kingdom, they are not fools. They're the only ones who really see. Remember Jim Elliott? Back in the 1950s, smart, young college student, athletic, good-looking, outsized personality. And he heads off to the jungles of the Amazon to spend the rest of his days in obscurity for the sake of the gospel. And he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's not just saying, we should give up some things to gain other things. He said, that's the smart thing. You're not a fool if you do that. That's the epitome of wisdom. Who would hang on to what he can't keep and lose what he could possess forever? He is no fool. Who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The trader sold all of his other pearls. He sold all of his possessions in order to obtain the one. He sold all of the other things he prized. You know, I don't know I mean, he's a trader of pearls. No doubt he's got quite a collection. Jesus, the way he tells the story is he sells everything. He sells all of the other things that, that he used to prize. It used to seem so beautiful. But in comparison to this new one, they're, they're nothing at all, right? And in that way, here's, here's what it is to be a Christian. Here's someone who leaves all of the other philosophies, the other idols, the other pleasures of this world that so many people treasure up, and he's willing to let all of that go if only he can get the one thing, if only he can have Salvation, if only He can become part of this glorious kingdom. Because the, the way God talks about it in the Word is so appealing. He just wants to be a part of that. And the loss of everything else is as nothing. True believers are willing to shed every competing philosophy, to turn from every worldly idol, to give up every sinful pleasure to turn their back on earthly prestige if they can just have Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh he said i also have reason for confidence in the flesh if anybody thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh he says i have more he says i was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of israel of the people of israel of the tribe of benjamin a hebrew of the hebrews as to the law a pharisee as to zeal a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, he said. Then he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's this passage being lived out in the life of the apostle. He says, I believe what God says about this kingdom. I have been given eyes to see the glories of this kingdom to such a degree that everything else can go by the wayside. It is the vision of the all-glorious Christ that brings people into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, friends, listen to me. Sell everything for the sake of Christ. Sell your worldly dignity and your natural pride to gain Christ. Sell your cheap knockoff pleasures and sins. Sell your hopes and dreams in lesser things. Sell your vain attempts at self-governance and surrender to the rule of Christ. Sell your short Earthly life that is like a vapor in exchange for an immortality in the unmitigated pleasures of the presence of God. That is treasure indeed. Amen. Heavenly Father, please give us eyes to see the glories of the kingdom. Give us hearts of faith to hold on to everything that you say about the kingdom. Give us a taste of the glories of your rule in our lives, even now, so that we are willing to leave everything in order to have Christ. Show us Christ, O Lord. I pray for anyone here who is yet apart from Jesus, caught up by the pleasures of the world or their own desire to govern themselves or their hopes and dreams that they're putting as an idol above Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'd show them a glimpse of the glories of what it is to live under your rule, so that we would all run to Christ with greater earnestness. We pray it in His name. Amen. While the pianist plays,